I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. We'll be considering verses 14 through 34 together. As we look at this text from Mark 1 this morning, some of you might be wondering, why study the book of Mark if we've been going through the book of Matthew together? Well, as I was looking back on our sermon archives on our website, I saw that Pastor McWilliams began his sermon series in Matthew back in 2010. So we're approaching almost two years in that book. Um, so it's been a while since we've looked at the beginning of Jesus' life. Um, one of the other reasons why we'll be studying Mark together is very simply because I've been studying this book together with our senior hires on a Wednesday night in our large group meetings. So it's uh, just simply easier for me to start with something that I've already spent some time in. Um, and another reason is that, is that although there is obvious overlap between Matthew and Mark, they are nonetheless unique in different areas of emphasis, in different, area, uh, different styles of writing that are reflected in those books. One of the amazing things about the authority of God's Word is that it has that one divine author behind every book that is written, but that each one at the same time is reflective of the individual style of the one who wrote that book. In this case, Mark's style is reflective and is different than the things that Mark emphasizes. So with that, let's begin in verse 14 through verse 34 of chapter 1 this morning. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and, brother, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Now, this far the reading of God's holy word. As we come to this passage in Mark, really as we come to any part of God's word, it is so important, I think, that we be reminded 
to approach His Word in a posture of humility, acknowledging the authority of God's Word and bowing in our hearts and our minds to the authority of the person of Christ over all of life. You know, there's so much confusion in our own time over the person and work of Christ. And of course, this is nothing new. I've been struck, as I said, we've been studying Mark together on Wednesday nights, how as we've gone through Mark's gospel, that regardless of who has interaction with Jesus, there is confusion over his identity. From the large crowds that hear his amazing teaching and see firsthand the miracles that he performs, to the scribes and the Pharisees, those who had understanding of Old Testament Scripture and should have recognized that this is the Messiah, the long-awaited King who has come, to the disciples themselves who see such things, who hear such teaching, and of course see the consistent character in Jesus' life as they spend time with Him in His earthly ministry. And yet there is continual misunderstanding surrounding the person of Jesus Christ. As we look at, if we were to consider the structure of Mark's gospel, we could say that it's broken up into two acts, if you will. Act one is all about answering this question, who is Jesus? What is his identity? And the questions that continue to come up, who is this that speaks in such a manner with such authority and such wisdom? Who can calm the wind and the waves with the power of his spoken word? Who is this who claims to forgive sins? It's this question about the identity of Jesus that Mark is pressing his readers to reckon with in Act 1 of the Gospel. And Mark answers that for us at the end of chapter 8 as he records Peter's confession, you are the Christ. And from there, Mark shifts gears and he seeks to answer the question, what did he come to do? If He is the Son of God, if He is that long-awaited Messiah, if He is God in flesh, then what is the purpose of His earthly ministry? And the answer to that question is recorded in chapter 15, in verse 39, with the confession of the centurion at Jesus' death, that as He finishes the work that He came to accomplish, dying upon the cross, the centurion guard cannot help but utter, truly this man was the Son of God. And so the person and work of Christ is what Mark's gospel is all about. Now, the gospels as a whole form a, a literary narrative that, were un, that was unknown in history prior to this time. That Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, creates a completely new genre, not in existence until now. And all of those gospels together are concerned with two things with recording for us the objective historical facts surrounding the life of Jesus, while at the same time pressing the reader to consider the eternal implications of these historical events for their life. You see, it's not as though Mark is some sort of modern-day journalist just recording information and then leading it up to you, the reader, to decide whether you believe those things are true and what you do with them in your own life. But he writes with purpose, with great intent, that your response would be one of putting your faith in Christ. And this is where the authority of God's Word and the authority of Jesus Himself is so important. Because all around us, the thinking is, I can just create Jesus into whatever image I want Him to be. 
I like his kindness and his benevolence and his mercy, uh, the way in which he cares about others and the teaching that he offers. But I don't like the things that he says about judgment. I don't like the claims that he makes about exclusivity, that you must look to him alone. But when, it, when we look at the Gospel of Mark, we encounter an historical person. And if Jesus is an historical person, then you simply cannot define him, but you need to allow him to reveal himself to you. And if he reveals himself as this and makes certain claims about his identity, then again, you cannot alter his existence, but you must be the one who is willing to be transformed by Jesus himself. Because you see, every other religion in the world is basically advice. Here's how to live a happy and fulfilled life. Here's how to have inner peace and enlightenment. Here's how through your own meritorious efforts to get eternal life. But Christianity is good news. Not what you must do, but what has already been done in history. His life for yours. And so we need our thinking reshaped by his authoritative revelation. We need his word to have an accurate self-diagnosis. We need his word to tell us what our condition is like apart from him. We need to see ourselves as he sees us, not see ourselves as we would like to see ourselves. You know, imagine for a moment that you have been experiencing abdominal pain for several days now. Your primary care doctor is on vacation And out of desperation, you just turn to the yellow pages and find anyone that you can go to. So you visit this doctor that you know nothing about, and he walks in, and he says to you, what do you want to hear? What do you want to hear that will make you feel better? You know, I've been a doctor a long time, and I know people don't like to hear bad news. In fact, you know, you're probably just fine. Let's just give it some more time, and it'll probably resolve itself. I mean, you would never return to that doctor. It would be foolishness. You would immediately go somewhere else. You may not want to hear the truth, but at the same time, you know that you do want to hear the truth. You know that you need to hear the truth. You want someone who will speak confidently to you, who will tell you the truth you need to hear, who will be there through that process, helping you recover. You want to hear reality because you know you need intervention because you realize you've got a problem. And so you need the word of the Lord to expose your heart, to show you what your problem really is. You don't need someone to tell you that you're okay and there's nothing wrong with you. You don't need to surround yourselves with people who will simply tell you what you want to hear. You need accurate diagnosis and you need to be pointed to the one alone who can heal, to the one alone who is sufficient. As Dr. Gaffin taught us on Friday evening, we start with the presupposition of the self-attesting, authoritative Word of God. And if this is true, then I in my life need to wrestle with the implications of this to see where His authority needs to bear its weight upon all of my life and all of practice. So where do we see the authority of Jesus? Where do we see it here in chapter 1 from the very outset of His public ministry? We see his authority first in verses 14 and 15 in the gospel proclamation. It's here that Jesus summarizes for us the purpose of his earthly ministry, of who he is and why he came to earth. 
Jesus uses this word gospel in verse 15. It's a a word that Mark himself uses in verse 1 as well. And that word gospel literally means good news. It's a word of proclamation. You can imagine that you were living in ancient times in the Near East. You did not have CNN to turn to to see how your army was doing as they were away on the battlefield. And so you would await with eager anticipation for that messenger to come running into your presence to make that proclamation of good news, of victory, of what has been accomplished out on the battlefield because you know that what has happened there will determine who has authority over you and it will determine whose allegiance you are to bow before. And so the gospel means that something has happened in history that changes your status forever. And the gospel message of Jesus is the kingdom of God has come. And notice that this proclamation of kingdom intrusion is in fulfillment of Old Testament longing. That the prophets of old spoke of a time when the kingdom of God would be ushered in. They looked forward to an age in which the son of David would ascend to the throne and would reign from that throne for all of eternity. And Jesus is saying that kingdom of God is here. And it is here in me. And it's this coming of the kingdom of God that requires you to respond in a particular manner. Well, how are you to respond to this good news? How are you to respond to this proclamation of kingdom intrusion? Well, in verse 15, Jesus says it is faith and repentance. You cannot have true biblical faith without repentance. Those who may claim to have faith in Christ, but their life is not marked by the ongoing fruit of repentance, that is not a true application and understanding of faith. And true biblical repentance always requires faith. We cannot assume that a person who is kind, who is benevolent, who is merciful in their character, while failing to profess faith in Christ, is right with God. Those two are always linked together in Scripture. These two are marks of Christian identity. Now, as Jesus spends time with his disciples throughout the Gospels, there is this constant exhortation continually coming from his lips to them because of their lack of faith. You recall when they are on the Sea of Galilee and the storm is raging upon them and Jesus is asleep on the cushion in the boat and they rouse him from his sleep. Don't you care that we are about to die? Jesus calms the wind and the waves and his response to them is, oh, you of little faith. And then later, when Jesus takes the loaves of bread and the few fish and multiplies them for thousands to eat, and then the disciples turn right around and blame each other for only bringing one loaf of bread for their journey, Jesus' response is again to exhort them for their unbelief, for their lack of faith. And so what Jesus is striving to teach his disciples is that faith is is not something that is connected to our circumstances of life, as though faith is to be present only when our circumstances are predictable, or faith is to be present only when we understand what is going on. Jesus never says lack of faith is acceptable when your circumstances in life are overwhelming, but rather it's in the midst of those seemingly overwhelming circumstances that Jesus chides the disciples for their lack of faith. And so we could say that the mark of one who is in Christ, the mark of union with Christ, is faith and repentance. 
And then the message of Jesus in verse 15 is then fleshed out in the rest of Mark's gospel. That everything that Jesus says there in verse 15 is then expanded upon through the things that he says and through the things that he does, ultimately culminating in his death upon the cross. Someone has pointed out that what drove Jesus' ministry was the proclamation of the gospel, the announcement of the kingdom, and the call to repent and believe. And again, you see that as you go through the book of Mark. That as Jesus heals and those come to him clamoring for his attention, that he removes himself and goes elsewhere because he says, my message is about proclamation, proclaiming the good news and calling for faith and repentance. Well, second, we see that Jesus' authority is displayed in the calling of his disciples in verses 16 through 20. The first thing that we learn here is what we could call the sovereign nature of this authoritative call in the life of the disciples. That it is Jesus himself who calls the disciples to follow him. And this, incidentally, would be contrary to common rabbinical practice at that time. And so what we learn is that it is the Lord himself who must call his people. It is the Lord himself who must draw us to himself. It is a call of sovereign grace that unless the Lord calls us to himself, we would never come. We will never get it. We will always be frustrated, and we will never delight in the gospel unless we are called by him. When we see that constant confusion on the part of the crowds and the religious leaders and the disciples themselves not recognizing Jesus' identity, we very quickly come to see that it is not because they lack information They don't need more data. It's not as though Jesus was holding back, but we're revealing clearly who he was. It was not a matter of information, but they failed to see Jesus with clarity, and their vision remains clouded because of their hardness of heart. And so what we need is his authority to impose itself upon our hearts and to change our hearts from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. And we also see that this calling of Jesus as he draws these disciples to himself is an irresistible nature. That the first disciples that Jesus calls to himself cannot help but follow him. That Peter, Andrew, James, and John follow immediately because of the irresistible nature of the call. And third, we see that this cost of discipleship, that we see this dramatic nature of the authority of Jesus upon their life is reflected there in that cost of discipleship. That the impact of this call is a very radical thing. We see that these men immediately stop what they are doing, drop it all, and follow Jesus. And so the call upon their life is clearly a call of priority. That the call to be a disciple, the call to be a follower of Christ, means that he impacts and that he transforms every facet of our lives. That his lordship is this overarching umbrella that covers all of life. That he is calling for lordship over all of your relationships. That he is calling for priority above all of your pursuits, all of your dreams, all of your hopes, expectations, and longings, and thoughts. That Jesus is the one who is to shape your identity. Your identity is not to be shaped by all of the things out there in the world that seek to vie for the affection and attention of your heart your successes or your achievements, uh, the affirmation or the accolades of others, the love and approval that you look for. 
But instead, you were to look to Him alone to shape your identity. And what Jesus is saying is that you were to know Him first. And everything else in your life is to be relegated to a lower level underneath your pursuit of Him. And it's your pursuit of Him that then redefines and shapes everything else in life. Listen to the way that Jesus puts it in Luke chapter 14. We see this high calling of discipleship as He says, If anyone comes to Me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be My disciple. What is Jesus saying here? Well, he's obviously using hyperbole. He's not saying to hate actively, you see, but to hate comparatively. In other words, you are to follow him so intently, so completely, so exhaustively, so enduringly that any other attachment in life pales, pales in comparison to the affection that you are to have for the Lord Jesus. And so to follow Jesus means that you lay aside your self-centered lifestyle in which you have this tendency for everything in your life to revolve around you and you now live as a royal subject to His kingdom. And before you think to yourself, well, that call of discipleship sounds fine for some. I'm glad there are others out there who are living with that kind of commitment to Him. I'm glad there are those that take the honors classes and sort of forge the way for the rest of us. Can I be content to just take Jesus 101 and settle for a B? But remember, it is He who sets the terms of this relationship, and this is a call for us all. If anyone comes to me, Jesus says, they must embrace this radical lifestyle of commitment to Him. And so this calling of discipleship is not simply for the super-Christian, but it is for us all. You either follow Him completely. You're either growing, you see, in faith and repentance, growing to understand what it means more and more to die to self and live under Him. Or it's not not something that's happening in your life at all. And so to follow Him means to follow in terms of priority above all else. But it also means to follow Him wholeheartedly as you look to His authority. Following wholeheartedly wherever He may lead you. One of my favorite books of all time is The Hobbit for a number of reasons, but one of which is the way in which Bilbo the Hobbit, just this simple, mild-mannered character, gradually transforms throughout the journey that he is called to endure. And you think if Gandalf were to come to Bilbo, visit him in his little hobbit hole, and sit there with him in the Shire, and if he were to tell him everything that he was going to encounter in the journey ahead that he was going to be walking this fine line between life and death all along the way and face giant spiders and this giant dragon at the end. If you haven't read the book, I just spoiled it for you. But (laughs) If he had told him everything that he was going to encounter, he would never go. He would never have left the Shire. And it's similar in our call to follow the Lord Jesus. The disciples are told to follow him, and they don't know what that following is going to entail. If he had sat with them and said, follow me, and here's what you can expect. You can expect trial and hardship and persecution. And in fact, many of you will die an excruciatingly painful death. I expect that there would have been a little more apprehension on their part. And yet, when those hardships came into their life, 
they were enabled to face them with trust and with confidence because of the transforming work of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus in their life. And we don't know many times in our own lives what the Lord is doing. We don't know why our life is the way that it is, why these circumstances and not others. We go through hardship that sometimes seems to cause more grief in our life than was there before. And He tells us what His will is for our lives as we read Scripture. And we don't always like the things that we read. We don't like the claims that He makes and the intrusive nature of the Gospel. It's not always what we want. It can be a dangerous thing to follow Him. It can cost us everything. And that path of discipleship may lead to great trial in our life. And yet, as George MacDonald has said, you will be dead so long as you refuse to die. You see, until you die to yourself and to your desires and your agenda and how you think your life should go, you are really dead. And the flip side of that, of course, is that it's only as you die to the self that you begin to understand what it means to live for Christ. And it was the Lord Jesus Himself who went faithfully following the will of His Father to the cross, taking hell upon Himself for us. And if He has done that for us, then certainly it is a minor thing in comparison for us to follow Him regardless of what trials may come into our lives. Now here's the thing about the Gospel. It is good news but it is your response to it that can never be one of neutrality. You either hear His call and you are responding in ongoing faith and repentance, or you dismiss His call and your heart simply grows harder and harder, more self-focused and defensive than it was before. There is no neutrality. And so the calling to each of us is the same. Heed the call of discipleship. Repent and believe in the gospel. Submit to his authority in your life. And as you grow in the Christian life, you see there's ongoing wrestling internally as we look at the word of God as it is a mirror revealing our hearts to us, showing us our need again and again for Jesus Christ. We wrestle with what does it look like? What does discipleship look like in my own life? as I reckon with bowing to the authority of Jesus overall. And third, we see Jesus' authority in the synagogue in verses 21 through 28. And you see, it's in the synagogue that we encounter Jesus' teaching with authority. Now, it's interesting to notice that the content of what Jesus says here in the synagogue on this Sabbath day is not recorded by Mark. We don't know what He said we don't know the way in which he said it. But we do know the outcome of his teaching. We know that it was remarkable. That even the scribes, even those who were professional teachers of the time, came nowhere close to the authoritative teaching of Jesus. But it wasn't just Jesus' ability to teach. The reason they were astonished at his teaching was because he spoke as one who had authority. And this authority is referring to his rule and to his power. It's not simply confidence, but there is great truth. There is great weight to what he says. For his authority is not something that comes from outside of himself, but it is authority that comes from himself as one who, of course, is divine. 
Jesus alone has the right to establish such authority. And remember, it's Jesus' proclamation, again, verse 15, that the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom is here. And it's this coming of the kingdom of God that is pushing back the darkness of this world, bringing illumination to those who are God's people. And so his instruction here is pushing back the false teaching of the time. It is his truth that is replacing false truth. So that again, when we look to the pages of Scripture, we can have confidence that this is truth. This is the truth that we need to bear upon our lives. This is the truth that needs to push back the darkness of the false opinions that we hear in the world around us. This is the truth that needs to drive out the lies that bombard us continually throughout our week. It's this truth that must inform our intellect and drive our hearts. And so we need regular, frequent exposure to the truth of God's Word to challenge the self where we've bought into that false thinking and false desiring. But His authority is not just made known through His teaching. His authority is also made known here in the synagogue in His ability to heal. In verse 23, we see that His authority is immediately made known in the way in which He handles this man with an unclean spirit. Again, Jesus does not conjure up power outside of Himself, but power and authority comes from Himself as God in flesh, as He speaks and holds mastery over all. And Mark tells us that this man whom Jesus healed had an unclean spirit. And to be unclean is to be ceremonially undefiled, ceremonially defiled rather. It is to be unfit to come into the presence of God. And so while the man is described as one who is unclean, we could say, well, certainly, that is a description of each one of us. In fact, it's this man's uncleanliness that should have kept him from coming into the synagogue. And yet he comes, and this unclean spirit makes a very orthodox confession. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The unclean spirit does not make that confession out of faith. But as he exposes Jesus' identity, he hopes to subdue Jesus in order to maintain influence over this man's life. But instead, it is Jesus, Jesus, the great King, who exercises His authority by the word of His power, telling the Spirit, be quiet and come out of the man. Ever since sin has come into the world in Genesis chapter 3, there has been two kingdoms that have run alongside one another, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the evil one. And it's in these last times... Excuse me, as Jesus comes, as he clashes with this kingdom of darkness, that he is already displaying power and victory over darkness by pushing back the powers of the evil one and by reversing the effects of the fall, exposing to us the purpose for which he came to destroy the uncleanliness that our sin has brought into this world. Now, finally, we see the authority of Jesus in restoration to joyful service and freedom from the condemnation of the law. We see further the power and the authority of Jesus in verses 29 through 31 when Jesus enters the home of Peter and Andrew and heals 
uh, the illness of Peter's mother-in-law. And just as Jesus later speaks upon the Sea of Galilee, calming that raging storm, and there becomes this immediate calm, so here, out of love and mercy and compassion, he takes Peter's mother-in-law by the hand, immediately restoring her to health. And so everything from healing the one who is possessed by the unclean demon, healing later in chapter 2, the paralytic, to healing those with illness. We're reminded that in all of those things of the brokenness of this world, that even when we experience those seasonal illnesses that creep up into our lives, we are reminded not only of our finitude and our weakness, but we are reminded even in those illnesses of our need for the redeeming work of Christ. That when He comes and restores this world the way that it is intended, that all sickness, brokenness, disease, and death will be removed definitively. And notice that as she is restored to health, that her response is to immediately serve the Lord. And this is such a great picture of service to the Lord Jesus, that as we understand the healing, as we understand the restoration that Christ brings through His finished work, similarly, how could our response be anything other than joyful service to Him, increased devotion, and a longing to give our hearts to Him completely? And not only does Jesus heal the unclean and restore the ill, but he brings freedom from the condemnation of the law. And we see this, I think, in verse 32. You see, it's still on this Sabbath day when Jesus began his ministry, teaching in the synagogue, healing the unclean spirit. It's still at the close of this Sabbath on sundown when the teachers of the law would finally allow others to travel. And it's only then that the city gathers to Jesus. Because on the Sabbath day, the only travel that would have been allowed by those in authority over the people would have been to the synagogue. And although Jesus has authority over all, the people of the town are so constrained by religious duty and fear of those in authority over them that they feel compelled to wait until the end of the Sabbath day before they come to Jesus. But you see, these teachers of the law who strive for righteousness through their own tradition, cannot really help those in need because they have no ability to bring true freedom. And so while some may look at Christianity and they may say, what an oppressive lifestyle you lead. You get up and go to that place on Sunday morning while we have the whole day to do whatever we want. Christianity is just so restrictive. What we can see is that it's really understanding the authority of Jesus over all of life and submitting to that authority that actually leads to freedom. Freedom to serve. Freedom to die to this sense of entitlement that we have. Freedom to live for His glory. Freedom in the gospel. As we prepare now to come to the table of the Lord, what we see in the elements of the bread and of the cup, is we see the Word of God reinforced. It has been wisely stated that there is nothing in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper that is not already conveyed to us in God's Word. And so just as we see the authority of Jesus from Mark chapter 1, we also see Jesus' authority in the table of the Lord, that He is the one who has established it and He has the right to do so. And that what he communicates through the table, that he has authority to bring life, 
authority and ability to nourish His people, and authority to usher His people on to that final day when the kingdom of God will be visible to all and when we will feast together with the saints of old and when the Lord Jesus Christ is there with us as our host, as our benefactor, as our healer, as our life itself. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the authoritative truth of your word. And Lord Jesus, we give you great thanks and praise this day for your finished work upon the cross and in your earthly ministry for us. May we as your people delight more and more to grow in service, in humility, in awe, and in reverence toward you. And may that be reflected in our life in ongoing faith and repentance. We cannot do it alone. We need the ongoing work of your Spirit, and we thank you for him. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.